Hello and welcome to the 14th Weekly Go podcast with myself. I'm Isaac Anderson, your host, and today we have a very special guest. We have Mr. Alex Illingworth. How are you doing today? Hello, Isaac. Very well, thank you. Great. Okay, Great now... to be on the show. No, not at all. It's always nice to have people who write such marvellous articles for the globe. Pleasure's all ours, really. Exactly. <laughs> well, good poetry, at least. <laughs> So, so apart, tell us more about yourself, apart from the fact you do write some very good poetry for the Globe and other articles, if you, if um, you may. Of course. Well, um, I myself am a student at the University of Oxford um, of philosophy and theology, principally. Um, and I've been on the sort of conservative blogosphere for quite some time now. I, I started back in back in twenty fifteen. And I, I I found that um my articles seem to keep getting longer and longer. <laughs> so now I, I, I consider myself more of an essayist, essayist than a blogger. Um but but I sort of uh, you see my my sort of political journey um from sort of Edmund Burke to Thomas Carlyle in terms of author style. Um so I'm not sure. I think I'll leave it to people who actually read me to decide what I actually am. It's probably the best thing to do. No, it sounds good, because I, I always find it's very hard to pigeonhole people. I mean, I myself, as you could be, I'd describe myself as a conservative, but also at the same time a classic, classical liberal. So, yeah, I, I do think, yeah. I think we, in some respect, we yeah. over-pigeonhole people, but what do you think about that? I mean, I, you, you're definitely right. I mean, it, it's very hard to say that People's ideologies are one thing. I mean, we like we like the left-right spectrum, but really, you know, it's perfectly possible to have some very conservative views about some things and some very sort of almost socialist views about other things. I know, for example, I know some very socially conservative socialists. You can't really, as you say, pigeonhole people, but it works for the most part. So I suppose that's why we like to do it. But you're definitely right. I think I think it's very hard to sort of pin people down. As one particular thing in politics. Yes, it reminds you actually of a story. A friend of mine back in had a. Um, he used to be a, the landlord for a pub in the village, and he was saying he remembered one time he was a conservative. He remembered one time he had um, the Honourable Betty Boothroyd MP there, which was a bit of a while ago. That Hello. was when she was still there, and he said, "I've met some of the most amazing and the most conservative people ever, and they are all." Labour Party voters down to a man, and he just—it was hard to fathom that. But I, I, I do think that is very much the case in many respects. Well, I mean, Betty Boothroyd herself has become much more conservative since joining the House of Lords. It's quite, it's quite fascinating to see people to do that. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of people seem to, well, a lot of former politicians seem to take that route. Like once they, once they sort of graduate. From the House of Commons and join the House of Lords, they they seem to sort of become very defensive a lot of a lot of British institutions, with exceptions. But um, but in general, you see that as the sort of the the old guard of parties like Labour. It's uh, it's remarkable what experience sort of does to people in that regard. You know, I would agree with you there. I would, I would say it's definitely a case of experience, although you do hear some who would argue and say, ah, it's merely snaps in the trough. But I, I, I do think that's rather inaccurate and rather, oh, it's obviously quite hurtful as well to the elder statesmen and women. Yeah. 
But if we were to um, move on from possibly the conservatism in the Labour Party, we could maybe continue on down to the conservatives in the, cons- the or the, the state of conservatism in the Conservative and Unionist Party. Indeed, because the thing about the, the Conservative and Unionist is they are, and well, they always have been, and they remain to a large extent the natural home of any political conservative. Indeed, but of course. You can't get around the fact that they have come under a lot of criticism in recent years, and um, it's undeniable that the influence of non-conservative ideas has begun to rub off on the Conservative Party. So, I mean, the changes are pretty obvious. Now, I wouldn't say that it is not a Conservative Party anymore. No, indeed. It's certainly amongst, amongst the membership, that is certainly not true. It is true that the leadership tends to be worse than the membership these days. And there was an interesting sort of, um, an interesting study that was released in the past few days. I'm not sure if you saw it. It was circulated on the Twitter sphere quite a lot um, of basically how, since Churchill, membership and activism in the Conservative Party has dropped away quite dramatically with each successive Prime Minister, Conservative Prime Minister. Oh, no, that would make sense. I'm not surprised, um, but yeah, can carry on. And uh, well, the, the reason why, well, no one really knows the reason why, but <laughs> it's not like the Labour Party, I know, would like to suggest this because the Conservative Party is just, you know, has no support amongst the British population. It's a sort of backwards, outdated, anti-progressive movement. Uh, but I don't think that's true. I think it's because um, the, the, the views and the opinions of the membership are, and it's a, it's a sticky subject, and, and it's hard to say that this is entirely true, but I think the, the views of the membership are largely ignored by the leadership. And it, it is one of the few political parties which doesn't really have a mechanism for sort of passing up grassroots ideas to the leadership. Indeed, I mean, yes. the, only, the only time that we really, as members of the Conservative Party, get a say is leadership elections. Um, and even then, it's dependent on the decision of the MPs. Um, like, for instance, with, with the election of Theresa May, there was no Sort of referendum to the membership. Indeed, no, I noticed that. It wasn't necessary. Um, and lots of people have issues with that, and some people don't have a problem with that. Um, I think. I mean, obviously, there was no opposition to May in the end, so there's not much you can do about that. No. But, I mean, it is definitely something which, is, which the Conservative Party needs to look at, because I think it would become a lot more conservative if it did allow, and it would also attract a lot more members, I think, if oh, it allowed sure. members more of a say. You know, I'd agree with that. I remember the very first time we, um, the Daily Globe, the Weekly Globe we did, were with our editor, Ted Yarbrough, and he was saying, well, this is a reason why membership of the Conservative Party is dropping, we've got defections and master UKIP. Why? Because they can feel they can be conservative and make a change in, in UKIP in those days. That, of course, was before the referendum, but it's interesting to see, unfortunately, things don't seem to have changed that much. I mean... There's also then the reshuffle. There was a, a new person appointed, I've forgotten, uh, 
the lady's name, but who was now responsible for the um, selection of, of candidates for constituencies, which I thought was always a matter to the, um, the constituents party or the Conservative Party in the constituency itself, which I yeah, think is... That's right. I mean, <clears throat> carry on. It's really strange because, as, as you rightly point out, it, it's always been a matter for, for local, local constituency Conservative associations to pick their candidates. And as far as I'm aware, that's kind of been the system since time immemorial. Indeed. Um, and that's changed now, I think... I'm not sure if this new sort of appointment actually has the right to choose, but they certainly have the right to oversee. And what that at least implies is that the leadership is doing sort of regulation of who they want in Parliament, yes. which really does undermine the sort of the principle of the constituency system that we have. Um, I mean, even even back in the days of sort of the pocket boroughs and the rotten boroughs of the of the, of the 19th and 18th and 19th centuries, the candidature was completely independent of sort of the, par- the parliamentary faction. Indeed. Um, so it's it's definitely something to keep an eye on because, um, I mean, I don't like to be like a, a doom monger, but it, it, you know, there are, there's a chance that it can get worse. And I think... As you see the two extremes, and the Conservative Party there is becoming less and less sort of direct involvement with the grassroots. And in the Labour Party, the grassroots is, is almost so strong that it's attracting it's attracting the sort of people who, until quite recently, were considered to be you know sort of that sort of fringe left old Labour, which has had died under the Blair years. Yes. But it's still very much alive. The people are turning back to it, I think, because they don't really know what it is. Um, yeah, well, there, we haven't, there, there hasn't been a hard left government in Britain, thank God, for, for quite a while. So, I mean, yes, it's... Uns- no, and even when we did, even when we did have sort of hard left prime ministers, I mean, there were a few exceptions, of course, but even when we did... Some of them, like if you look at someone like Ramsey McDonald, Indeed. he was basically propped up by Conservatives, and so they managed to moderate some of his more uh, sort of extreme views, if that's the right word. Yes, I think, I think that's a good word. I think that is a good word of putting the expression. Yeah, no, it isn't. No one doesn't, as you say, doesn't want to be a doom monger, but there isn't that much one can sort of look up to with with joy and cheer about, unfortunately, at the current state, but. But who knows? I mean, we can. We'll probably see more grassroots. I think. I think sooner or later the um, the party headquarters are going to realise that they can't engage a grassroots movement, which is more or less momentum has become. I say momentum because it's probably more momentum's prime uh, leader of the opposition than it is the Labour Party's. Yeah, I mean, momentum has arguably become the the party these days. which is why, well, it's one reason why actually I think the Conservative Party is sort of becoming more of a radical centre party because a lot of the sort of former Blairites are starting to head towards the Conservative Party because they're not happy with Jeremy Corbyn and such. Now, I, I wouldn't, now that, I, I can't confirm that 100%, but I know a number of people who have done it who did it for those reasons, personally. Um, I wouldn't normally be such a 
sort of, I wouldn't be really so anti that if it weren't for the fact that these people are actually sort of, because they're very politically involved and they're very politically active, which is not a bad thing. Not at all. Um, they are sort of joining the party as members and also because they have, if you like, the right views, because they are quite socially liberal, because they don't say things which are sort of, you know, too traditional, things which are not considered heretical <laughs> under the sort of consensus that we have today. Um, they, they rise through the ranks a lot more quickly, and they sort of shove traditional views to the side. And so I don't think you get a very good sense of what the Conservative Party membership truly is like when you look at these sort of new incomers. Um, but I think in the next few years, it's very likely the Conservative Party will change quite a lot in terms of how it's perceived as a party. And I think it will, well, it won't necessarily move to the left, but it, it certainly won't be moving to the right anytime soon. It's, it's going to sort of maintain its position as the kind of centre party with certain right leanings. So if you're a traditionalist Conservative, you know, the attraction always used to be UKIP, but as you've said, the referendum, people basically think they're irrelevant. So they, so the people who were once active there have either just sort of given up on political activism because as far as they're concerned, they've won their victory, even yep. though I'd say they haven't. No, um, Or they've gone back to the Conservatives, which in which they're not really going to gain a lot of traction. Um, so I think it's important to bear these things in mind when talking about the Conservative Party's future. Yeah. So would you would you put paint a more of a uh, an up a, a positive picture or, or a negative picture? Or would you say it really is up to what the party itself decides, or what the CCHQ itself decides to um, take? I think. Well, obviously, the, the party has to decide for itself what it wants to be in the future. I suspect. Indeed it won't be a particularly conservative party in the future. And, I mean, it's got every right to move in the direction that it wants to, and it's sort of shaped by the people who support it. Um, But what that means is is that political conservatives in Britain will seek another home. But the problem that we all always face is the fact that the Conservative Party is an institution. It's called the Conservative Party, Um, if you see what I mean. Yes, indeed. there's this always going to be this institution which has found, founded itself on the pretense of being the representative of the conservative movement in Britain. And that was the point of it. That's what Peel founded it to be. Um, people who were um, sort of people who realised that you couldn't resist change all the time, but people who also realised that um, changing everything all at once was going to be rather disastrous sort of rather, rather disastrous and that, and that you had to have a respect for tradition and religion and, and, and family and things like this um, so as the Conservative Party begins to move away from those sorts of things but it doesn't change its label there's a, a very good chance that the word Conservative like political Conservatives won't be able to use the word Conservative anymore, anymore in the future it's already quite a confusing term. If you say to someone, I'm a conservative in this country, the first thing they're going to think of is the party, yes. not, not the ideology. So, realistically speaking, I, I think there's a very good chance that we're going to see people refer to what we would call political conservatives um, using other terms in the future. 
terms like um, terms that have historically been considered quite derogatory, like reactionary, traditionalist, counter-revolutionary, things like this. Um, the sheer reason being that conservatism becomes associated with something quite different, and if you are standing a little further to the right than those people, then you're effectively moving further away from a very centralised political sort of established way of thinking. Yeah, it is. No, I'd agree with you. It's, it's, it's somewhat unfortunate, but on the other hand, it is an opportunity. I mean, I'm not sure that I could refer to myself as a reactionary quite yet. I mean, give me a bit more time. But counter-revolutionary okay. <laughs> makes me think possibly I've read, um, read too many copies of Pravda. Not of my own personal choice, I can guarantee you, but uh, it was for work, solely for work. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you're right. I mean, by all accounts, you're, you're probably... I don't think you and I are full-on reactionaries, but as you say, give it a few years, and you never know. It depends really how society acts, because I mean, for all intents and purposes, the sorts of views that you and I have, maybe 50, 60 years ago, they wouldn't be that out of place. No, no. I mean, I'm... Fairly, moderate, fairly moderate views on the whole. But today, increasingly, they're becoming quite radical because it's not within that sort of accepted uh, window for, for discourse. And as that window gets sort of smaller and smaller, which I think will happen if the left is not checked often enough. In question, I would agree with that. And then people will become more and more radical as they're excluded from that window of discussion. Indeed, uh, yes, the old, the old fear of polarisation. But I, I do think I do see what you mean. But there's one sort of topic we've often had hosted here on the Weekly Globe, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have sort of feel this at home. Is it really our topics that we we feel, and probably an awful lot of our listeners also would agree with? We would refer to as probably traditional conservative or or classical liberal values. Do that much of the nation that does that much of the nation really? not but agree with it or is it more that it's been made that you can't really agree with it and so we all sort of sit back and take our medicine in a quiet way but um, what would you say on well, that the, the thing about the thing about this is that well actually we can we can probably get a better answer by looking at how the left treats this issue because it's very interesting if you look at sort of the history of it because quite a long time ago talking back in the 1960s really um, a lot of left-wing intellectuals realized that classical marxism was never going to succeed because the proletariat as they might call it was far too traditional um to ever really bring about the sort of revolution that they had hoped for um i mean lots of working class people you know traditionally have supported Socialism, but they've never really supported communism no. because traditional socialism is basically just um, socialist economics combined with quite quite a lot of conservative views socially, because you know um, society tend to, society is basically built upon the work of the working class, and so at least historically speaking, and so perhaps the, the best reflection of British society for a long time was the, was the British working class. And British society has always historically been quite small-c conservative. Yes. Um, so the left treated the issue by basically 
um, gradually infiltrating institutions <laughs> like education um, and universities. Perhaps that's where you see most of the damage these days. Um, because they reckon you know, if we can't change society now, um, perhaps we can do it slowly. Indeed. And conservatives are usually the ones who are all for changing society slowly because they believe it's the most stable way to do things. Indeed. But when it comes down to it, the conservative right has really overlooked this problem and hasn't really done much to counter it. So I think the majority of British people are probably, if not traditionalist, then they're certainly cautious. And in that sense, they're conservative. I think they're sus- we, we are of people who are naturally quite suspicious of yeah, suspicious of attempts to sort of do us a bad deal. But now, especially with the younger generation, we're seeing changes in attitude. So, you know, in maybe 20, 10, 20 years' time, the sort of the opinions of the nation will look quite different to how they do now. Probably, yes. Um, no, no, I, I would agree with you, on that, and I, I think you really, you really hit the nail on the head because I think it very much is possible, very much is probable, as as the previous the anecdotal evidence I mentioned before about the landlord and the uh, Betty Boothroyd, mm. it was that the fact that you could be have conservative values but still vote socialist and things like that. But I think what we're now seeing is, as you say, uh, more like socialist values being enforced in a conservative manner especially, as you point out, in our universities, which is... Well, Joe Johnson himself raised up the issue of the ex-universities business, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, unfortunately. Yes, well, it's hard not to have... Sometimes have to take a bit I of mean, a grim view on that, why he was moved along, but mm, we can... I mean, a part of the reason why this sort of change has happened is that the Labour Party, which historically you know, used to stand for these values of sort of basically not, not really being too bothered about social policy and focusing mostly on the economics, uh, that's, that's most definitely dead. Yes. It, it, it's, um, even if Jeremy Corbyn is bringing in some more left-wing economic policies again, um, he's definitely socially very liberal. And, I mean, I don't know what I'm using that term, socially liberal, because it, it means sort of it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But, Indeed, uh, progressive. I mean, would progressive be the word that's one quite often quite used a lot here in the in the United States? But progressive, or maybe insane. I'm not sure. <laughs> <that's right. laughs> well, and I'm sure probably a quite number of, of our listeners would agree with that. But uh, <laughs> we're we trying to maintain frank, forthright, and fair discussion. So, <laughs> um, oof, yes, no, but I, I know what you mean. Yes, very much so. <laughs> Um, anyway, um, yeah, I, I shouldn't be so harsh on the poor fellow. Um, but, but, but basically, yes, the point is this, is that um, the Labour Party doesn't stand for those values anymore. No. But a lot of people will still vote for it because, you know, their father did and their father's father did. Indeed. And that sort of thing. Um, and that's very hard, I thought, to break. Um, that, I mean, technically, that would probably... Now, when it, when it comes to criticising the Conservative Party, 
for the fact that you know, a lot of voters vote for the Conservative Party out of inertia rather than real belief in its policies. You know, that would lead probably a left-wing pundit on to go on about how we need to get rid of third past the post um, yes. because it sort of creates the two-party system. But really, um, first past the post is a, is a different discussion and probably not, not quite relevant right now, but... Um, I mean, really, first past the post isn't about opinions. It's about interests. Yes. You know, Ed, Edmund Burke wrote very beautifully about that in his address to the electors of Bristol. But effectively, he said, if it was about opinion, then you might as well have proportional representation. But it isn't about opinion. A representative should respect his, the opinions of his electors. But it's about representing their interests. And so, you know, no one's ever going to be happy, basically. The system's got to work somehow, and it tends to work quite well as it is. Yes, yeah. I mean, as you said, it, it is a completely different um, discussion altogether. But it, I do like the way you've sort of noted the difference of opinion versus interest. Yeah. No. Yes, I think I think you they hit the nail on. We're talking about universities. Um, I'll pick up on that before we forget. Yeah, by all means. <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering what the point was again. I, I, there was something I knew I had yeah. to be go, pointing us back to, but I forgot what it was. So carry on. So, um, obviously, being right-wing and a university student is, well, it's not exactly a walk in the park. No. I wouldn't say, I mean, some people have it much worse than I do. I've been pretty lucky, actually, in that I had a fairly easy ride myself. And, I mean, I have had some tutors who have disagreed with me, and they've, they've largely been pretty you know, pretty willing to engage with me, and I've had some tutors who agree with me entirely. Um, but I know of many people who have had quite different experiences at other universities. Indeed, alas, um, I would say it. No, I was... And, um, yeah, by all means, carry on. And... Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that really the biggest problem comes not at least, for example, at, at my at my university, the problem is not really that the professors are left wing or anything like that. Even if they are, they tend to be quite willing to discuss things. Indeed. The problem comes in things like our students' union, yes, which. Basically, you know, it's, it's a body which claims to represent all the students at Oxford University, but it pursues incredibly sort of almost sort of momentum-style <laughs> left left-wing campaigns, and gives a lot of money to different different groups to, with political agendas, and you know, it says all oh, it will release statements on different social issues, saying, oh we as the students of Oxford University condemn this or endorse this. But you think, hang on, hang on just a moment. You know, not I've... all of us are momentum supporters. <laughs> not all of us are, are left-wing. What about me? Where's my representation? Where, where do I get to condemn this without just being one man? Yes. Because the students' unions are good. They allow people to combine. But the fact is, that, for example, at Oxford, most of the students are pretty apathetic. Like most, like the, the students' union has referenda on different issues at various points, and often the turnout is incredibly low. Yeah. People simply don't care, and yet they still have the 
you know, they still claim to speak on behalf of everyone. I'm, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure if something like that is sustainable in the long term. And they have these these groups which go around to things like go around to say abortion debates and sort of just stand outside or stand inside even. That happened recently, last term. So just screaming and shouting slogans and refusing to leave and just disrupting the whole thing. And, uh, and even sort of pro-abortion account got very upset because... Um, As one should do. They, they, did, they didn't have a chance to even say anything. No. Um, no one did. And it's just, it's just ridiculous. And it, you, it reaches the point where you, you try to engage with some of these people, they, they won't have it. No. They'll just repeat their slogan over and over again, like it's some kind of... Mantra? You know, a sort of a... No, I was going to say a broken record, but <laughs> it's, it's just a... <laughs> you, know, you, you just, like, you ask a question, and they'll just repeat the boilerplate mantra. It's, um, it's not particularly stimulating, and you'd expect better of a university student, really. But such is the way, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a hindrance, and it's, it's more than a hindrance, it's, it's not really acceptable. No, it um, shouldn't be. Well, unfortunately, yeah. it's an unfortunate state of affairs, it, um, I do know what you mean, it's the the apathetic versus the, um, the over, the overzealous, I mean, I find, unfortunately, yes, and unfortunately I find many times those who preach the most tolerance are often the ones who, it appears, seem to leave, live the life of least tolerance. Well, you're right. I mean, one of the big problems, or I, I, I would argue, I argued in one of my latest posts on my blog, that this is actually getting so bad amongst the left that it's almost bordering on pathology. And that might sound pretty harsh, but the, the point is, is that, as, as, as you would say in the United States, liberals, or as I would prefer to say, um, sort of leftists, Indeed, um, have reached this point where the, sort of the focus of their morality is empathy with different sort of social issues, such as, you know, it might be migrants in Europe, it might be the LGBT community, it might be, I don't know, feminism or something. But they, they'll, have, they'll say, oh, I have empathy for these people, I'm empathetic towards them, I, uh, I recognise their struggle. Um, and the, the basically, if you don't empathise with a certain group of people, you might as well be the devil. Because you're heartless. Yes. And, and the point is, is that empathy is not a moral code. Empathy is an emotion which we all naturally feel. Of course. So that we can ab- abstractly consider what life would be like in someone else's shoes and fundamentally it's linked to the sort of the survival instinct i've got to think about how someone else might feel so that if i face the same situation i've got time to think about solutions exactly. and that accompanies pity and sorrow because we now i think humans generally have pretty good hearts we feel we feel bad about people who are in bad situations yes um but that's not actually a moral code that's just an emotional response Moral codes are, are rational, thought-out things, and they're, they're quite legal in nature, even if they're not formally part of the law. But when we think about mor- morality, we tend to think quite legally, like, this is right, this is wrong. Yes. And when you start saying, oh, you don't empathise with this, that's wrong, you, you, you basically start to legalise the thing. But empathy is an emotion, it's not 
it's not a moral, rational way of thinking. And that's when the, that's where the problem starts to come. If people start thinking like that on a, on a grand scale, society becomes incredibly sort of volatile. And I don't think that's healthy at all. No, I don't. A volatile society can never be helpful. And I do, I do agree that it seems to be more like empathy versus... Maybe I shouldn't say sanity, but I would say rationality. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe orthodox literally means straight thinking or clear thinking. Yeah, it literally means sort of right thinking or right doctrine. So you're right there. Yeah. So and then what you when you were saying about the um, the students or the, a certain party of students shouting down the the debate on abortion, it reminds me of during the election campaign when a number of people interrupted um, Jacob Rees. Wasn't the election campaign? It must have been after. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg was giving a speech in his constituency in a debate and I think it was in a cathedral and he was um, no, it couldn't have been in a cathedral it must have been a town hall pardon me uh, it was I, I remember you're yes, about. yes I yes do, and he famous and they were all shouting Tories out or whatever it was it was rather, it was rather discriminatory I thought but hmm. presumably they, 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 theirs is the right to define what is discriminatory or not I mean he tried to engage with them didn't he exactly so they basically just did exactly what I said that these people had done in Oxford. Precisely. So they, they just repeated their slogans. Exactly. They weren't, they weren't really interesting. And here's the thing about most people like that, is that they don't, their arguments are very weak. It's actually quite easy to debate them because you'll win quite quickly. Because they don't actually have any arguments prepared. The problem is just that their response to basically losing is to become very... Sort of quite obnoxious and aggressive sometimes. Yes. And that's not pleasant. No. But honestly, at that point, the best thing you can do is just withdraw because yeah. there's no point flogging a dead horse. No, there isn't. I mean, but you should be confident in the fact if you're going to engage with someone like that that you are you have basically come out on top. Yes. Yeah, so these are not hard things to. Oftentimes, these are not too hard to sort of come out on top of because. As I say, they're not really willing to debate you. They're just they're just there because someone told them, "Oh, this Tory speaking here. Yes. Let's go interrupt him and cause trouble," which is quite a delinquent way of behaving, really. Oh, it's extraordinarily childish, I'd mind. Yeah, but as you say, yes, it reminds me of uh, yeah, Mog's famous line: um, "Leaving aside the issue of my despicability to one side, what parts of my policies or proposals do you not like?" You're a despicable person. <laughs> yeah, well, we, ju- we just left to the side by despicability. We're not discussing my character. We're discussing policies here. But no, alas, it's in policy. No. I do think it, the, the death of debate... Maybe I shouldn't say the death of debate, but I've also the the, the, the um, less popularity and the um, less ability of everyone to engage in an open debate, at least, at least where I am and the communities I've been in, seems to be, to me, to be a very worrying phenomenon, but... Huh. Yeah, so it's definitely something we need. I think I think we need to seriously think about how we conduct our debates because they're if, even if you you know watch something like the debates that are put on on the television, Question Time, things like that. Oftentimes, the behaviour of certain members of the panel can be quite bad. Like it, it descends into a shouting match <laughs> of how you know that person sitting over there is despicable for X reason. If you want a proper debate, you need to stop linking someone's personal character with their sort of platform. Sometimes it's relevant, but just saying, for holding this view, you are despicable, 
really just proves your own weakness. So no matter who you are, right or left, you shouldn't be saying things like that. No. And more, more often than not, it's the left that ends up saying things like that, which I think is very telling. Oh, yes. Um, yes, um, yes, I do agree that it's very telling. And I, I take heart to the fact that many who I describe as people of conservative values are more often the ones who are open to debate and open to a, to a proper discussion, as opposed to many, well, maybe I should be a little bit less partisan here and say, referring to people as fruitcakes and closet loonies, racists and closet... <laughs> Closet, sorry, fruitcakes, closet racists and loonies. So that's why I've been bipartisan now. So. <laughs> yes, well, we've covered all our bases, haven't we? <laughs> Indeed. So you talk about covering bases. What should we, we can maybe cover your positions? I mean, or at least what what do you do? You said you've been blogging in the, um, or essaying possibly since 2015. Uh, you yeah. have your own blog that we... Yeah. Yes, I mean, um... I blogged for a long time on a blog called Burkean Thought. Indeed, yes. Which was basically my attempt to revive the spirit of Edmund Burke in an age which I thought needed Edmund Burke. And, of course, what I discovered quite soon after that was that there were lots of others who felt the same way. Yes. Um, because I, I was fairly... Well, I, was, I wasn't new to politics at the time. I, I'd been fairly decided on my opinions for a while. But, um, but I had... I'd, I'd certainly decided that it was about time that I started making, like putting my own little grain of sand into the pile. Yes. Well, um, and uh, so I blogged there for a long time, and then recently I've started a new website because working with thoughts. I mean, I started it when I was fairly new to the sort of blogging sphere. It was a bit cluttered. It was a like I hadn't posted on it for quite a while. And it was just, um, it wasn't really very well organized. So I've moved to a new website now, which is called the Occidental Almanac, which um, I think you can find it linked in the in daily, on my biography in the Daily Globe articles. Yes, well. I believe so, it usually is. Um, and on the Almanac, basically, I've dedicated my time to writing longer pieces and I hope more thoughtful pieces generally. Um, basically, my, my point in sort of as well in moving to a new block is that it's allowed me space to sort of have a bit of a fresh start, consider some of the bigger questions that I wanted to address a bit more openly and a bit more from a new perspective. Indeed. Yeah. Um, because I would definitely consider myself to be a traditionalist conservative in the same sort of brand as... Um, well, as Edmund Burke ultimately Indeed. was, I think. But um, if you want someone who is like a modern, a contemporary figure, of whom I'm, I am quite close to ideologically, it would be someone like Roger Scruton, um, who I like a great deal. Although I don't agree with him on absolutely everything, I think he pins down the sort of conservatism that I adhere to quite well. Um, I mean, I, I tend to say... Um, in terms of my conservatism, the three great sort of pillars, if you like, of my conservatism are Burke, Chateaubriand, the French conservative, and Scruton. Um, and then when it comes to sort of my, my writing style, the three pillars are Thomas Carlyle, who was the great Victorian essayist, exactly. who um, founded sage writing, um, the German poet Goethe, who ah. I've, I've always liked, and Indeed. the German philosopher 
German philosopher Schopenhauer, okay. who, whilst is pretty, he can be pretty morose, if I'm honest. <laughs> but the thing about Schopenhauer, the thing about Schopenhauer is, is he actually he, he wrote very good advice about um, how to win arguments, and he was a very rational and critical person. He he generally had a very great appreciation for um, aesthetics. He basically he basically founded the modern aesthetic of, of romantic classical music. And, and for that, I think, although I don't think he ever considered himself a conservative, he, clearly he would have considered himself libertarian, really. Um, I think he was more of a conservative-leaning than a lot of people would, would think. And uh, for that reason, he gets a place on my sort of pantheon of great inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to have it all very very nicely organised and ordered out, no. <laughs> so would you would you this is an interesting concept here I know you're a bit of an you're an expert on um, the history of conservatism where would you say libertarianism has branched out of conservatism or would you say is, is it completely different or I would say that libertarianism well libertarianism didn't originate with conservatism but conservatives no. have adopted some of libertarian libertarianism's ideas I think that's the way around that it's worked okay um, I mean, when we talk about sort of the British classical liberal tradition, I mean, a lot of the people who we would point to, such as Adam Smith, John Locke, the great figures of what we now call liberal democracy. Exactly. If they were around today, they certainly, I don't think they would have used the word liberal to describe themselves. And I mean, the word liberal certainly wasn't around in their day. No. It wasn't, it didn't, the word liberal didn't, wasn't used in a political sense until I think about 1819. The so Liberal Party. In that yes. sense, it's a fairly, it's a fairly new idea. <laughs> yes. If you, if you pardon, if you pardon. No, no, I know you've been studying conservatism yeah. since 100 AD, so no, by all means, 100 years is new if you've been studying it I for mean, a millennium. I mean, <laughs> I mean, conservatism has been around since the classical world um, in some shape or form, and libertarianism effectively because of the work because of the concept of libertarianism grew out initially in a left wing sense from the French Revolution, but it was sort of combined with these other great sort of enlightenment philosophies to create a right wing variant which we would now call libertarian conservatism or right libertarianism. And I think libertarians can be great allies to people who are have traditional views. But I think ultimately the clash between conservatives and libertarians comes when a libertarian would say, oh, I believe in this, but I would never force it on anyone. I would encourage it, but I wouldn't enforce it because I wouldn't want to deny someone of their liberty. Yes. Whereas a conservative might say in that instance, I see your point, but if I think something is really morally indefensible, then I wouldn't want to give people the choice. No. And I think that's really where they deviate. And I know that sounds quite authoritarian to a lot of people, but I mean there are plenty of examples of, throughout history of where people have accepted that sort of view, especially in terms of religious conservatism. Yes. Yeah, so um, but also, yeah, very much so. It may sound authoritarian, but if you, if if we put it into perspective, I mean, I'm sure we would all agree with, no matter what your opinion on murder is, the murder is still indefensibly and automatically wrong. And there are many other, like... Exactly. There are many other crimes I think that we as a society and we as individuals can be very authoritarian on, and it doesn't necessarily mean wrong. 
it goes back to your old state, your previous statement about things being morals, uh, very much like law, very much a yay or nay, yes or no issue. Mm. I mean, this is something that a lot of philosophers have tried to work out. It's this idea that you know, certain things like murder, we've always, like civilization since time and time immemorial, have considered that to be wrong. Yes. And it's never been permissible to kill someone in cold blood. Um, and what that tells you is that there must be something within humanity which says, well, it's just obviously wrong to kill someone without any, any good reason. And even then, even if you kill someone with good reason, it never sits right with people. You see people, like for instance, you hear stories of people who have you know, killed someone who has broken into their home. They're, they tend to be tormented by it throughout their whole lives, even though they had a justification. Because we don't like to take the life of another human. It's considered to be you know, beyond that that sort of almost transcendental line. It's the thing that you don't do. It's, yes. It's play God almost. Yeah, no, very much so, it is playing God. So, um, you know, there's, that's one piece of evidence for this idea of uh, sort of the first base, before everything there was this moral being. Yes. Um, so, so that's why I think there are some things which will just always be against the law because they can never be considered right by anyone, no matter how liberal or accepting anyone is. The vast majority of human beings will always consider certain things to be unacceptable. Yes, I mean even I mean, even Stalin himself described a a, a, a death as a, as a tragedy. But although a million could be a statistic, a, a death is death is still tragic. You, tragic. Wonder, you wonder with people like him whether he was sincere. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it was to- at least it was toe in the line. At least he sort of knew he- even here with all his crimes, that was one thing he couldn't get away with. He had to make at least an announcement to give himself some sort of reason for it. Well, he had to give himself the pretense, exactly, of, of, of legal standing, I suppose. And that's the thing. Even in the most sort of corrupt society, there will at least be the pretense of justice. Yes, because we always need it. We, or at least we always need to believe that we have it. Yes. Otherwise, you might as well not believe in society at all. Yeah, or yeah, almost not believe in human nature. I mean, very much. I mean, the people who we refer to as often quite as being obnoxious in debates refer to themselves as social justice warriors. So they view that they view the justness of their causes being the, the param- of paramount importance. Exactly. I mean, and that's one thing which I think right is yet to work out is what is our social justice. And that's one thing which I've been I've been working on recently. Actually, is, is one of the principal topics of my of my new book. Indeed. Um, which um, will uh, well, I'll be able to give more details as, as the year goes on. Um, but uh, there'll be a something which I've I've, recently, I've worked on last year, and it's now going to be coming to the fore. And effectively, the the scope of this new book of mine will be trying to go through many of the same problems that Enlightenment philosophers were thinking about. You know, what is the fundamental bedrock of society? Indeed. And how do you build up traditions from that bedrock? Um, and, and my book, effectively, tries to give the political right a sort of a home, if you like, Indeed. a philosophical home in um thinkers of both the Enlightenment and the Counter-Enlightenment, because both have had good ideas, and I think they deserve to be mixed, even though 
I think, you know, those two different schools of thought would naturally say they disagree with one another. If you combine the two, you get a fairly sensible reading of Western civilization. No, and no. I think, if, if nothing else, I think looking at history like this will help those of us who consider ourselves conservatives, whether we consider ourselves really sort of nationalist types or whether we consider ourselves just a, a sort of a liberal conservative who's only slightly right-wing, um, it will help us to sort of shore up the ideological home that we come from, which really is what we need, because we don't really, not all of us really know where we come from, do we? I think that's one thing to think about. No, I, th- I think that's very true. Well, thank you very much for coming on the um, Global The Weekends. It's been a pleasure well, to have you. Been a, it's been great to be on. Indeed, no, it's been a wonderful opportunity to be able to deliver the globe and I hope all our listeners have enjoyed it and are doing well and we shall definitely um, keep you updated on Alex's work all the work here on the Daily Globe and until then thank you for listening to the programme that takes things and looks at issues in a fair, frank and forthright manner